Good morning. My name is Stephanie. I'm a member here at Redemption. And this morning I'll be reading uh, from Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's reading for us today. Would you pray with me? God, we see in these verses so crystal clear that we are nothing like you. God, we want to run from this world. We will go to great lengths to avoid the people we do not like, the people who have hurt us, the people who concern us, the people who disgust us. We will go to great lengths to run from them, God, and all the while, you are so different. All the while, you want to use us to redeem them. That is a wonderful mystery to come and behold today in this passage. We pray you would use these words to shape us and to mold us into the image of Christ, who we desperately long to be like. In his name we pray, amen. When we experience some kind of a crisis, usually, uh, once we're on the other end of it, we really want to know, what was the point of that, right? Uh, what did God just do there? Why did he just let that happen? Especially if this crisis is the result of something we've done, then our antennas perk up even more. We really want to pay attention to the spiritual significance of it. For instance, maybe we try to run a red light and we crash into another car. Uh, or we just lack self-control in one way or another, and it leads to some kind of a major health crisis. Whatever the case may be, when these self-inflicted crises come up in our lives, it's almost as if we can't help but to ask and to wonder, what is God 
trying to show me here? What am I supposed to be learning from all of this? I'm sure you can relate to that. I I think we've all been in a situation like this where we have this question for one reason or another. But just imagine how Jonah felt after this fish vomited him on the shore, (laughs) right? He has now lived through a horrific storm. He has been thrown into the sea. He has been swallowed by a fish in which he has lived for three days and then, right? Here he is. (laughs) He's back. The crisis is seemingly over, and at this point, I think most people, reasonable people, would probably be wondering, hmm, what's God up to here, right? Uh, what is he trying to tell me? Now, obviously, he wants Jonah to go to Nineveh. That's very clear. But, but more than that, Jonah must be wondering at this point in the story, why? Why does he want me to go to Nineveh? Because For any Hebrew in Jonah's day, a trip to Nineveh would have been a crisis unto itself. The wickedness of Nineveh is very well documented, not just in the scriptures, although it is, but even in non-biblical historical references. Uh, Later on in the Old Testament, there's actually another prophet, Old Testament prophet named Nahum, who lived shortly after Jonah, after all of this would have happened. And his Old Testament book of prophecy is basically full of God's judgment against Nineveh for its wickedness. So according to this very same Bible, all of the repentance that Stephanie just read for us right now, all of it will not last. It won't even last. In fact, this was the capital city of a murderous pagan empire. And and after Jonah, after this story, these same Assyrians who lived in Nineveh will actually overthrow the northern kingdom of Israel. God will use them to displace his very people. Okay, but even just based on what we see here in chapters 1 and 2, even just based on that, by the time we get to this point in the story, we are meant to be wondering What does God want to show Jonah in Nineveh? Why is he sending him here? Why is he doing all of this? What is the point behind it all? As soon as Jonah's back on dry land again, God sends his word to Jonah again. (laughs) Uh, The author even says this for the second time, just in case we forgot what happened two chapters ago. He tells Jonah this time, God tells Jonah exactly what to say, and and this time he goes. He goes to Nineveh. He walks into the city, and not long after he arrives, he preaches a very brief message, (laughs) and the entire city repents. The entire city repents. The king of these murderous pagan people even demands that the whole city stop everything they're doing in order to repent. And and, and like many of the details of this book, church, this is meant to shock us. This is the last thing you would expect to read at this point in the story. But again, as we read it, we are meant to be wondering. We're meant to be reading beneath the lines of this book here, between the lines, beneath the surface. Okay, what is God really trying to say here? 
What does he want us to see? How does this miraculous, shocking event in chapter 3 actually shed some very important light on what was happening in chapters 1 and 2? To help us understand the prophetic message beneath the surface of this book, we are going to take a closer look at the three main characters in this story. We are going to look at Jonah, at Nineveh, and at God. And as we do this, again, I want this question to be front of your mind. I want you to be considering and asking yourself, what is God trying to show Jonah here? Because it's as we consider that question that I think we're going to see what God wants us to see in Jonah chapter 3. And the first thing we see in this story is that Jonah barely takes God's word to Nineveh. Barely, right? Now, I have to address something here. If we have made the interpretive mistake, which some do, of assuming that Jonah has fixed his relationship with God by that prayer that he prayed last week in chapter 2, which we saw, by the way, with a little closer look, that was not the case, Right? But if we miss the irony in Jonah's prayer from chapter 2, and we assume he's basically sort of patched everything up, he's had a change of heart, here he goes, it may be very tempting to think once we get here to chapter 3, well, look, he's getting it right this time. He's getting it right. But then, uh, I'm sorry, we may even be tempted to paint him as a hero in chapter 3 because, look, he goes, he obeys God, and look, He preaches, and look, the Ninevites repent. Yay, Jonah, you did it. You did it. But I have to warn you for this. If we think that, we will not have any clue what to do with chapter (laughs) 4. If you just read the first verse in chapter 4 right now, you'll see why. We will not have any clue. I will have to go back and contradict everything I say today if I were to preach that to you. Because Jonah is not going to be happy about what happens today. In fact, he's going to be rather ticked about what happens today. And we're just going to have to figure out what do we do with that. What do we do with it? And that's the point. A lot of people do make this mistake in understanding the book in that way. Maybe uh, many of you even have told me, look, I've never heard this about Jonah. I've always assumed that he was a hero because he had a change of heart and then God used him. But I just want you to consider all the details of this book that we have to ignore in order to come to that conclusion. All of the details. Listen, he was just running away from the presence of God, very much so on purpose. Um, The author even mentions that twice. He tried to sleep through the storm that God used to get his attention. He volunteered to be drowned at sea rather than going to Nineveh. And when God saved him in the belly of the fish, he didn't even acknowledge any of that. He said nothing about it. He did not acknowledge it or turn from his sin. In fact, he actually gloated that he was going to fix it all. As soon as he could get back to Jerusalem and make that sacrifice, what I have vowed, I will pay. Right? Do you see this? We have to do all kinds of gymnastics to paint Jonah as the hero of this book. Now, did he pray a heartfelt prayer? Was he thankful that God saved his life? Yes. But he also happened to bash the pagan sailors in his prayer, who we happen to know were actually worshiping God at the very same time. Right? And 
Does he actually go to Nineveh this time? Does he go according to the word to Nineveh? Yes, he does. But I just want you to consider this. What else was he going to do? What else was he going to do? He had already tried running from the God who made the sea and the dry land. And if you remember, this God had him thrown into the sea and puked back on the dry land. What else could he do at this point? What other, where could he run? One scholar puts it this way. I think it's really helpful. He says, disobedience has not profited him. Perhaps obedience will work better, right? That's the idea here. That's what's going on. This passage does not emphasize Jonah's role in saving Nineveh. In fact, I want you to see now that it actually does some very significant things in order to downplay his role in saving Nineveh. I want you to notice that this time when God tells Jonah what to do, the author uses the exact same wording that he used in chapter 1. Like, come on, buddy, here we go. We're doing this again. Second time, he even says. But the only difference this time is that God tells Jonah to go and call out um, against the Ninevites the message, he says, that I tell you. You don't get to figure out the message. I'm going to give you exactly what to say. And I think the author includes that detail here so that all of us are to understand as the reader, whatever Jonah is about to say and do next, we should not give him the credit for it. This way, when we see what happens next, when we see this entire city repent, we will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we will not think that somehow Jonah is responsible because he is just saying what God sent him there to say. The author is trying to rule out the possibility even that Jonah is the hero. He is not the hero in this book. The author even tells us that to walk across this ancient city of Nineveh would take three days Three full days. And at first you might wonder, well, I don't get it. Why is he telling me that detail? But then next you see in verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city. Barely. Going a day's journey. He's a one-third of the way into this great city. Right? In other words, he's barely even arrived yet. <laughs> he just begun, as it says, to enter the city. And so again, what happens next, we also cannot assume is the result of Jonah's hard work and toil. He has not worked hard, and he has not toiled at all. He's just barely got there. But the most important evidence that the author is trying to, to, to show us here to downplay Jonah's role actually has to do with the content and, frankly, even the length of the message he preaches. Right Now, this entire book has been building up to this point, Jonah gets to Nineveh, right? The whole book started with God telling him to come here. He clearly rebelled. It's been a wild ride since then, right? But here he comes. He's here. He's walking into the city. We just had an entire chapter of his flowery religious prayer from the belly of the fish. What is he going to say now? What is this great message that God has for Nineveh? One sentence. One Sentence. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not the most hopeful sentence. <laughs> Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In the original language, this amounts to five Hebrew words. So after 
all that we've read so far, and after just seeing just how intensely God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh, we're supposed to read this and think, that's it? That's it? 40 days and they're going to be overthrown? No indictment of their sin? No mention of hope or restoration? Not even a call to action, here's what you need to do? None of it? This is the message that God had Jonah swallowed by a whale and spit up to come here to say? 40 days and you're done. That's it? And the answer is yes. That's it. And if we haven't figured this out yet, this is exactly how the book of Jonah works. This is precisely the point. The author is trying to show us just how little Jonah did here. So that we can read what happens next. And when we do, we will be certain beyond a shadow of a doubt. Okay, that wasn't him. We will be certain beyond a shadow of a doubt. Something else must be going on here. Because even though Jonah has barely taken God's word to Nineveh next, we see Nineveh totally repents and receives God's word. After doing everything in his power to avoid coming here, <laughs> Jonah shares this tiny little message and then a radical chain reaction of repentance explodes throughout the entire city. Look with me at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God, which is significant. They just believed Jonah. They believed God. They called out for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, it says then, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And we're supposed to read that and understand Everyone. All the way up even to the king. The author tells us that this king issued a proclamation. He published it throughout Nineveh. Throughout Nineveh. Which is interesting. So Jonah says one gloomy sentence because God forced him to say it. Then in response, this pagan king of Nineveh publishes a proclamation throughout the entire city. He tells everyone, hey, listen, stop what you're doing and call out mightily to this man's God. Unbelievable. In this decree, the king even demands that everyone stop what they're doing and repent in this way by doing a fast. And he says, if you look with me, he says, let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock taste anything. In other words, even the animals of Nineveh are participating in this act of repentance. Even the cattle are turning from their sin. But they are not putting on a show here. It's very clear from the king's proclamation. This is very sincere because the king even says, let everyone turn from his evil way. And, and, and from the violence that is in his hands, very much unlike Jonah, by the way, who still has not repented of his sin. In his prayer from the belly of the fish, Jonah, if you'll remember, he presumed that God would save him. Of course, he would save him. Well, the king, by contrast, says, well, who knows? Who knows? Right? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In other words, just like the sailors in chapter 1, this king is not presuming that God would have mercy on him or his people. 
He's not presuming that at all. He does not feel entitled to be saved, and yet he repents. This description of Nineveh's repentance is designed to eliminate any possibility that their repentance was somehow contrived or disingenuous. It was not. Or that only a few people actually repented. They did not. It was everyone. It was the whole city. No, the point here is that Jonah barely got to Nineveh. He uttered one sentence that he didn't even construct himself. And in no time, there was no one even left to repent in Nineveh. Every living thing had repented from the king to the cattle, except for Jonah. In the beginning of this story, we had no reason to think that Nineveh would repent in this way. It actually began with God telling, Nineveh, God telling Jonah that Nineveh's evil, was, they were so wicked that their evil had come up to him in heaven. The idea that they would respond in this way because of one sentence that Jonah uttered is meant to shock and confuse us. We're meant to read this and think, really? That sermon led to this response? And as we turn our attention to God, the final character here, we're going to start to see what's really going on, I think. This is where the book starts to turn a corner. In part three, we're going to see that God lavishes grace on Jonah's enemies. He lavishes grace on Jonah's enemies. Look with me at verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Had they still sinned? Yes. Was their wickedness still enough prior to this experience to to make its way up to God? Yes. He gives them an opportunity to repent. They do. And he does nothing. He does not do it. This is a pivotal point in the book because in light of everything else we've seen, we're we're starting to see here a little bit into God's motivations. We're supposed to read this and think, oh, okay, this is what's really going on here, right? Oh, I see. I get it. I understand. This was why God sent Jonah to Nineveh. This was why he wanted him to call out against their evil. This was why he refused to let him just die at sea. God didn't want to judge Nineveh for their wickedness. He at least wasn't excited about that. No, he was orchestrating their repentance. He was sending Jonah to redeem them. Why? Because Jonah has just said salvation belongs to him, and he will give it to whom he please. It's clear Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh, but we don't really know entirely why that is yet. We're going to see much more of that next week, why he didn't want to go. But here in chapter 3, we do learn why God sent him. And Ultimately, God was sending Jonah to Nineveh to show him something. He was trying to put something right in front of his face so that he couldn't miss it. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to show him, Jonah, this is what you've been running from. You were running from me, lavishing grace on this entire city. You hate these people so much 
that the thought of me, and certainly you, having anything to do with them disgusted you. It made you sick. And I have brought you here against your will to show you just how hypocritical that is. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to show him that he has far more grace for Nineveh than Jonah does. And church, this is our big idea for today as well. This is what we're meant to see in Jonah chapter 3. God has far more grace for this world than we do. See, we may be reluctant to pursue certain groups because in our mind we've decided they are our enemies. But what we see in this passage is that God does not see it that way. This God does not share our hatred for our enemies. He lavishes his grace on our enemies. And he even sends us to our enemies because he wants to use us to do it. And someday, his own son will be sent on a very similar mission to a different city that is equally wicked. But when God's son, the ultimate prophet, goes to his very people, preaching his very small message. The kingdom of God is close at hand. Telling people to repent and to believe in the gospel. When Jesus comes to his Nineveh, Jerusalem, with his little warning, many will not repent or believe in his gospel. In fact, they will kill him for even mentioning it. Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would Jesus go to a wicked city where his very own people uh, hate him in order to share a message of judgment if he knew that this message would get him killed? Why wouldn't he just run the other way to get as far away from that whole calling as humanly possible? The answer is this, church. It's because he has far more grace for this world than we do far more. This God is nothing like us. He is nothing like us. He has far more powerful and far more gracious in a way that really puts a spotlight, doesn't it, on our powerlessness and our hard-heartedness. This is what we see as we look at Jonah chapter 3. What I want to do next is I just want to consider what does all that mean for us? (laughs) What does that mean for us today? Uh, What do we need to remember, for instance, from Jonah 3, when we feel sort of thrust into a sinful world that we would rather avoid? When we feel like God is sort of pushing us against our will into the streets of Nineveh? There are three things from this passage that we need to remember when that happens. The first one is this. God's word is shockingly powerful. God's word is shockingly powerful that is it has the power to transform even terribly wicked people in shocking ways now it's not quite clear again exactly why Jonah's message is so brief Uh, there could be a few really interesting reasons actually for instance some wonder if Jonah intentionally said the least amount possible to try and sabotage God's efforts here basically thinking well if I just say the bare minimum of the message then no one will actually repent and then boom they they all do Um, that's possible 
But on the other hand, and I think this is more likely, some think that God intentionally sent Jonah to Nineveh with a five-word message so that Jonah could not miss the fact that God was behind all of this. And none of it had to do with him. He, somehow he could not ever take credit for saving these people that literally five minutes ago he was so desperately trying to avoid. In this case, it's hard to know for sure what's going on exactly in Jonah's head here. Uh, it doesn't say, but either way, frankly, either way, I think the effect is the same. We are meant to look at that detail of the story, and we are meant to say God's word is shockingly powerful. And for any number of reasons, any number of reasons, yet we are so often reluctant to share it. Not just because we're scared, by the way. Not just because uh, we think we might be rejected either, no, It's because we are not nearly as interested in God redeeming our enemies as God seems to be. Can we relate to this? Can we relate to knowing the power of God's word ourselves, experiencing it even, but just just hoping that we won't have to share it with them, right? Can we relate to this? I can relate to this. (laughs) Get up here every week. I do my best to tell you the shocking power of God's word, and yet there are many groups, there are many rooms that I might not be as emphatic about it. I might be a little more reluctant to be as clear. And it has a lot to do with me. Do we ever neglect the power of God's word, for instance, I think, like Jonah may want to do or even be doing here, do we neglect the power of God's word by overemphasizing his judgment at the expense of his grace. That is possible. That is possible. Do we enjoy talking about God's judgment a little too much? Are we confident that as long as someone's willing to say the really hard stuff in the Bible, they must be a solid Christian, even if they actually kind of seem to resist or avoid or even downplay the good news of the Bible, namely that this God with every right to judge all of us has lavished grace on us in Christ. Are we zealous to preach judgment while at the very same time, you know, a little apathetic about grace? Are we always worried that those who do preach grace so clearly might be compromising? That they might be going soft on sin? And they might be starting to sound a little too much like this world? And if so, could it be that these hesitations are not just an earnest desire on our part to be faithful to God? Could it be that deep down we feel this way because we don't really care to see our enemies redeemed? Could it be that we feel this way because we kind of even like the idea of them being judged? Church, thankfully, God does not. He is so much different than us. He does not share our apathy or our hatred towards our enemies. To him, all people are his enemies. The entire human race, every single image bearer on this planet has rebelled against him and he still lavishes his grace on mankind in Christ. Do we long to see the incredible power of God's word 
actually redeem and transform our enemies? Do we long for that? Or are we more disgusted by their sin than we are confident in God's word? I want you to imagine the person in your life who you may think is farthest from God. Imagine the person in your life who you would expect to just cringe if they even walked into one of our services because we actually open the Bible, we actually read it, and we actually take it seriously, even when it's kind of like, it's really hard. Think of that person. I want you to picture that person. I want you to imagine having the courage to just boldly tell them, I I love you. I love you. But if you do not repent and trust in Christ, God will judge you for your sin. I want you to imagine saying that. I want you to imagine the anxiety that would well up within you as you prepare to utter those words. I want you to imagine the worst case scenarios that would be running around in your mind as to how they might respond. I want you to imagine the weightiness of saying that to another person made in the image of God. And now I want you to picture them broken by their sin. Picture them crying out to God in worship. Picture them clinging to the death and resurrection of Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. Picture them forsaking their former life. Picture them being made new, being baptized, joining our church and turning around and telling others about the incredible, shocking power of this God and his word. Listen, God's word can do that. God's word can do that. On one hand, we can almost enjoy telling people that God will judge them without actually expecting them to repent, maybe even hoping they don't. That certainly seems to be the case with Jonah. On the other hand, we may never even dream of saying something so bold because we've convinced ourselves that if God says that, that's too mean and we need to be nicer than him. But what I want us to see is that in both cases, This is because we do not believe in the shocking power of God's word. We do not believe in it. The truth is, church, we do have a message of judgment for this world. We do. And that message of judgment is true. If people do not repent, if they do not bow before Christ our King, they will perish We need to tell them that. We do. And yet, we need to tell them this knowing full well that we deserve to perish with them. We of all people should know this, church, because we have been transformed by the shocking power of God's word. We have received his testimony about his son, Jesus Christ, which has us standing condemned in our sin and yet redeemed, even still by his grace. We know this, and yet, instead of remembering it and trusting in the power of God's word, like Jonah, too often, we elevate ourselves above the rest of this world. As if we don't really need his grace. As if we don't really need to be changed by the power of his word quite like they do. And as a result, we like to draw all kinds of borders and boundaries around God's grace. As if we should be the ones to choose who gets to experience it and who does not get to experience it. And so the next thing we need to remember 
when we feel sort of thrust into Nineveh is this. Number two, God's grace knows no boundaries. God's grace knows no boundaries. No matter how much uh, we may hate a certain group, no matter how much we may despise a certain person even, God does not stoop down to that level with us. He does not share the same kind of hatred for our enemies. His grace does not respect our boundaries. (laughs) It's not as if he he pours out his grace just as far as we would like him to, but then he stops as soon as he gets really close to our enemies. No, that's not how it works. God lavishes his grace far beyond our borders. His grace is meant to explode beyond our boundaries, shattering any sense of spiritual pride they may represent. This God redeems us out of our earthly identity groups with all their borders and boundaries and into a blood-bought, spiritually redeemed family. Church, the gospel makes us brothers and sisters with those who may have wanted at one point in time to kill our brothers and sisters. It makes us fellow citizens of a heavenly kingdom with the sworn enemies of our actual nation. I want you to just imagine reading this book as an ancient Hebrew after the Assyrian exile. Imagine reading the book of Jonah as a Hebrew after God used this very city to conquer your homeland, displace your family, and probably even kill many of your closest friends. Imagine being an impoverished refugee in exile because of the Ninevites. And then imagine looking back on the story of history and reading this in your Bible in verse 10. When God saw what Nineveh did back then, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them, and he did not Do it. Just imagine reading that, knowing that if God had poured out his wrath on this city, you might not be a refugee right now. Imagine reading that and thinking, but but God, they're not going to stay repentant, God. (laughs) They're not. They're going to change again. They're going to go back to their wicked ways. They're going to rise up and they're going to conquer us. And that's why I'm here. How would you feel about the shocking extent of God's grace and his mercy to Nineveh then? By most standards, Jonah and all of the Hebrew people had very good reasons to hate the Ninevites. They had very good reasons to loathe and avoid them at all costs. They had very good reasons to build social and even spiritual borders to try and keep them out of their lives, except for the fact that apparently their God did not loathe Nineveh in this way. He did not erect a spiritual boundary to keep Nineveh at a distance beyond the reach of his grace. No, he sent his very own disgruntled little self-important prophet right through the gates of that city, fully expecting to lavish his grace on everyone there. And if we read this church, and if it makes us cringe, it is because we are far less gracious than he is. This God does not play by our petty rules of engagement. He does not care which nations are part of the UN and which nations are not part of the UN. Doesn't care. 
He does not care if your group has better political policies than that other group. Because he is the creator of all of the groups. He is the ruler and reigning God over all of the groups. None of them deserve his grace, and he still gives it. Church, we, we need this book so badly in 2021. We need this book so badly because one of the resounding messages of this book is that as God's covenant people, we don't really get to have enemies. It's not a thing. We don't get to write anyone off or to decide that they're beyond the reach of his grace. No matter how badly someone hurts us, no matter how deeply a group may concern us, we need to lay aside our earthly grievances and our spiritual pride, even if they're understandable. Even if they're understandable. And we need to view these people, these groups that we'd rather avoid through the eyes of this God. Which does not mean that we excuse sin. Does not mean that we forget the pain that people have even caused us. But it does mean that we trust that our God is gracious enough to redeem even our enemies. Even our enemies because, hey, he redeemed us when we were his enemy. But if even still the thought of God using us to redeem our enemies troubles us, if even still it leaves us feeling unsettled, it's probably because there's one more thing in this passage that we need to see. One more thing. Uh, first, God's word is shockingly powerful. Second, God's grace knows no boundaries. And third, we tend to lack both power and grace. We tend to lack both power and grace. Uh, have you ever told someone, hey, uh, that plan that you have, whatever it may be, that plan is a terrible idea? Have you ever told someone that? Uh, and then, not long after saying that, has it ever become very clear that actually it was a really great plan? <laughs> uh, and as a result, has it also become very clear that you lacked the foresight to see that it would be a great plan? Uh, maybe you could tell, but this just happened to me the other day. Um, that's why it's so fresh on my mind. Uh, Carrie and I were trying to move a big piece of furniture out from the garage into our van. And she said, hey, I have a great idea. Let, let's use your old skateboard from middle school. And uh, let's put the dresser on that. And let's just sort of push it that way. I think that'll be easier. I said, Carrie, <laughs> the van's right there. Right? Let's just pick it up. I mean, I know it's heavy, but look, it's an awkward space. We might not even be able to get it between the house and the van that way. Right? This is terrible idea. But she said, no, 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 come on, let's, just, let's try it, right? So we did. Sure enough, it worked. It worked. It was a lot easier. And, and, and as a result, my lack of strategic furniture moving insights was on full display. That's basically what's happening here. Jonah was doing everything in his power to run away from Nineveh because he thought, that's a terrible idea. That's a terrible idea. Then, as soon as he begins to even walk into the city and open his mouth, everyone repents. Not a terrible idea, right? Very clear. Now, there's really only one appropriate response to that, which is, of course, to say, wow. You're right, God. <laughs> I clearly did not have the power to do this. I clearly lacked the grace to even desire it. 
but you are far more gracious than I am and far more powerful too. And this is the point, right? God can use us in powerful ways to redeem this world. And clearly, I think another takeaway here is that he, he wants to do that. But it's not because we're savvy enough to engineer the right messaging for this world. It's not because we are holy enough to go fix everyone in this world, right? This God does not work through powerful people who just somehow happen to be just like him. No, he works through sinful people who know that they're nothing like him. Church, like Jonah, we need to see just how powerless and hard-hearted we are before we can truly appreciate just how powerful and how gracious God is. So it turns out this God does send sinful people like us to reach our worst enemies. He expects us to open our mouths and to tell them the truth of his word. Now, is that terrifying? Maybe even a bit unsettling when we think about it? Yes, it often is. <laughs> Does God know that we'd probably prefer to do it a slightly different way? Oh, yeah. He knows. But does he still send us to Nineveh anyway? Yes. He absolutely does. Because much like he does with Jonah here in chapter 3, God wants to show us something very important. This God wants to show us that he has far more grace for this world than we do. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now with our hearts, our minds, our lives open to you, God. And we want to say, use this chapter to change our lives. Not just in theory, not just in our minds, not just our thought lives. Use this chapter to help us have conversations with someone we might never have a conversation with. Use this chapter to send us into situations and circumstances we would otherwise do everything to avoid. Use this chapter to stop our cowardice to simply say what you have said. Even when we think this world will never accept it, use this passage to give us the courage that your word is good. Your word is true. Even if you send us into the heart of a murderous pagan city to say it, it is still good. It is still true because, God, you are a God of unprecedented grace and mercy. You will judge. You have every right even to judge and yet for those who receive your word and for those who repent, God, you will relent. You will extend grace and you will prove yourself to be a holy and righteous God entirely other than us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.